Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Hi everyone. I really hope you enjoy this podcast. It's a good one. I've just listened to it back and there's fantastic takeaways in it and some really good stuff to think about. However, I do need to apologize to you and I do need to apologize to Jordan because I kind of ruined the audio a bit. I reformatted the memory card just before I recorded this and I had a horrific hiss all the way through. Now I've tried to clean it up as best I can and it is listenable. Please bear with it. It's possibly not a podcast for the car but there's such good content in it. I really want you to enjoy it. Thanks. I really appreciate the support. John Ross, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It is good to be here. Thanks for having me along. I'm having to draw on every ounce of my male identity for this conversation. You're a superstar of physical feats. You've had achievements in business. Your accolades continue to grow as franchisee of Aussie Home Loans in Shell Harbour. Um, I think you're a born winner, which is why I wanted to get you on the podcast and, and dig into why and what we can learn from your approach. But I want to cover some facts first. So sport, European Cup winner with Wales Rugby League, grand final winner as captain of York Knights. You've been a Melbourne Ironman finisher. You've won the state cycling championships uh, and you're now a top tier CrossFit competitor. Business. Senior roles including head of the branch network for Credit Union Australia. You've delivered major results at CBA, MoneyQuest, Aussie Home Loans. And like I said before, now you're the franchisee of Aussie Home Loans at Shell Harbour. I'm thrilled to have you on the podcast. That's quite the introduction. I'll, I'll try to at least do it some justice, Alistair. I almost want to call you Bo Jackson. Do you know who Bo Jackson is? I don't. We're going back to 1989, and Bo Jackson was a Major League Baseball player and an NFL player at the same time. And I think he's the only pro athlete in North America to be all-star in both categories. In addition to that, he could have done track and field at college. He had a 100-meter time of 10.39 seconds. He had a, over a 2-meter high jump. He had a 7.5-meter long jump. I think if your complexion were a bit darker, I'd swear you were related. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, he um, sounds somewhat more impressive than me, but I, I, I do appreciate the um, the likeness. Thank you for that. Oh, you have to Google the adverts. They did some great Nike adverts, uh, Bonos, in late late 80s, early 90s with everything that you could do. Yeah, I did follow Bonos, but that was on the footy show. I remember when uh, Bo Ryan was doing the Bonos surfing Bonos, Wollongong. So I'm familiar with that Bonos, but maybe not this one. Well, I think they may have slightly robbed that idea from uh, Bo Jackson. All right, we've got a lot to talk about. Um, why don't we start in the UK uh, as a mortgage consultant, but obviously a top-tier athlete at the same time. What did life look for you uh, at that point in time? Yeah, um, so I'll probably start at the beginning there. Um, I played at Leeds when I was playing my junior rugby league and I think I first started at Leeds when I was about 15 and I was there till I was 18. But in those three years that I spent at Leeds, I had a fairly horrific uh, 
start to my playing career as far as injury goes. I think I'd had at least two reconstructions to my right shoulder uh, by the time I left Leeds at 18. So fairly early on, it was clear to me that I'd, I'd need to have some form of plan B or, or backup. And I actually just stumbled across a role working in a call centre for Skipton Building Society. And I, I fairly quickly kind of progressed through a couple of roles there and decided that I actually quite like financial services. And um, my focus really then turned to having a full-time job working in finance and playing semi-professional rugby league in the, um, I suppose, as of an evening and of a weekend. So I, I think it's probably fair to say my focus was, was split fairly evenly in half at that point. So we're working a full-time role and focusing somewhat on having a professional career, uh, whilst at the same time uh, keeping my rugby league hopes and dreams alive and um, playing semi-professionally. And, and that's, that's where I'd, I'd remain, actually, for the, the rest of my playing career. How interested were you in your professional career at that point? Or were you just going through the motions to concentrate on sport? Yeah, it, it's a really good question. And I think at the time I thought I was as focused as anybody else and, and certainly as focused as I, as I should have been. Um, but that wasn't really the case. I, I was probably well and truly in the, uh, in the routine of doing what needed to be done. Um, Maybe not the bare minimum. I, I, I certainly tried hard, but I, it, I couldn't say it was it was my sole focus. It was actually only when I went to live in Australia for six. Well, I went to live there for twelve months. But I lived in Perth for six months with my uncle, and and he had, had himself had quite an impressive corporate career, and he he took me under his wing a little bit, and um, he was a good influencer, and he really helped me see things a little bit differently as far as my corporate career goes and, and maybe where I should be focused, what might be possible and the type of roles that I should perhaps pursue when I got back from Australia. So I probably only really started focusing seriously on my, on my corporate career when I returned from my, from my, um, my gap year in Australia. And at, at that point in time, had you retired from semi-professional rugby league? No, no, not at all the opposite in fact so I, when i returned from australia um, for my for my gap year i actually had the most uh, successful seasons of my career uh, largely because i didn't get well i did get hurt but i didn't get quite as hurt as i had done in previous seasons so i've been able to play a lot of games um but i think also i'd come back with a a really serious desire to achieve some things whilst I was still able to play. So, yeah, I, I think when I returned from a gap year, I came back with a whole new um, view on what I wanted to achieve both in my corporate career and in my playing career. And how long were you back in the UK before you obviously came back to Australia? It was about two and a half years. So uh, whilst I was in Australia, I agreed terms with York City Knights and I signed, I think I signed a two-year deal with York. Uh, I returned just before Christmas and then I played the next two full seasons uh, before making the decision to uh, return to Australia uh, with my then girlfriend, Michelle. Um, and yeah, I, I came back with a um, spouse visa and put down roots and obviously started a life 
for us here in Australia. So at that point in time, had you made a conscious decision that you were probably leaving rugby behind? Um, not initially, no. no. So when, when I first came back to Australia, I'd just come out of camp with Wales. We'd just won the European Cup. At that point, I had, I had a slip vertebrae in my back. I have something called spondylitis, which essentially means one of your vertebrae didn't fuse when you're when you're i think actually when you're a baby and it started to cause me some problems uh, certainly whilst i was in camp with wales fortunately for me um when it was at its worst when i was in camp i was living the life of a full-time professional player so i had lots of help as far as physios and doctors and people making sure that i could go out and train each day certainly making sure that i could get through the games and i did absolutely intend to keep playing then when i came back to Australia and I signed for a local team actually called the Royal Butchers and a couple of the guys who I played with at Wales actually signed there that year as well. I had every intention of playing um, but I think the reality of sitting back behind the desk every day all day and then attempting to go training of an evening whilst my back was somewhat untreated started to cause me some problems meant that I just had to reevaluate where I was at as far as my, my physical condition went and whether or not I truly believed that I was able to deliver what the coach thought he was getting at the club and, and certainly what the other players deserved. Uh, and yeah, I made the decision at 26 to, um, to stop playing. And um, yeah, I, I never played a competitive game since. And given that you're quite competitive and you're, you're drawn to pushing yourself and achieving things, how did that feel for you at the time? Yeah, I do remember losing sense of identity at that point because I'd always been Jordan, the rugby league player, or at least that's who I thought I was to everybody else. And when that part of my life kind of stopped and it, it just wasn't a part of, of my day-to-day um, lifestyle anymore, it, it did have me kind of searching around questioning, well, if I don't do that anymore and I'm not at that anymore, then what do I do now and what am I now? And I actually started racing motocross bikes again, which I'd done as a kid from the age of um, five. And I'd only stopped when I signed professional uh, papers at Leeds. So, yeah, I, I think I was probably looking for something to do, something to be in a sense of identity again. And um, I stumbled back into racing motocross bikes for a couple of years. Which I can always imagine any professional sport team are going to have a heart attack if you think you're only spending the weekends on motocross bikes. <laughs> Too risky. Yeah, well, that, well, that's right. And, and my first my first shoulder reconstruction at Leeds uh, came at the hands of a motocross bike, actually. So before I'd even set foot on the field for Leeds as, a, um, as an academy player, I'd had a fairly horrific injury racing arena cross on the motocross bike. And pretty much my first dealings with the club was, thanks for your interest, um, I've just had a reconstruction. Can you help me rehab it back to fitness? And then I'll be keen to play kind of thing. So it wasn't really an ideal start, to be fair. In in business, and you've spent all your time in finance and particularly in lending, what's your appetite for risk? Um, I think controlled risk is quite important, actually. I think unless you're prepared to take 
certain risks, it's unlikely that you're going to achieve your full potential and success. I think more and more, though, um, certainly in the finance industry, because think about when regulation happened in the UK and all of the consequences of that, GFC, more recently the Royal Banking Commission, I think that you know, risk has played a, a bigger and bigger part. So I think the need to understand risk and manage risk is absolutely critical. But at the same time, I don't think it can be eliminated Eliminated if you want to be uh, truly successful either. Is motocross controlled risk? Yeah, it is. And it's accepted risk, I think. So I, I think sometimes people talk, like I, I crashed my bike only a few weeks ago, actually, and um, my arm was interesting with a, with a fair bit of skin missing. But I knew that risk. I knew that existed. I knew that as soon as I jumped on the bike, there was always the risk that that would happen. Um, and I do my best to control that in not riding outside of my limits, riding tracks that I'm familiar with, and a bike that I mostly understand how it's going to behave. But I absolutely accept the risk is I could crash each time I go out and something, you know, somebody else could do something out on the track that I'm not expecting. You know, or at the end of the day, it's motorsport and an engine can stop or a wheel can collapse. And, you know, all these things are risks, but I know they're there and I'm accepting of them. It's worth it for me. Motocross is a, is a solitary game. At, at what point in your corporate career did you start taking responsibility for teams of people? Um, my first job leading a team was actually as a branch manager for Skipton Building Society. I ran the Selby branch, which was a brand new one. And it was actually following some encouragement from my uncle over in Australia who had said, you'd be probably quite good in a management position. At that point, I wasn't really sure why. and I, I certainly wasn't sure whether I agreed at that stage either. Um, but but he'd, he'd, give, he'd give me a lot of good advice over the years. And I felt as though when I got back to the UK after my gap year, if there was a role in leadership that came up, I should try my hand at it. And I think fairly early on, I realized this was actually something that, not necessarily from a capability perspective, but from an enjoyment point of view, something that I, I, I could see myself doing long term and, and specifically the achievement of people that you've helped and coached and developed, it will easily outstrip anything that you can achieve for yourself um, on your own. And everybody might not think that, certainly people who do you know, other solitary sports and things, but um, it was a better match for my personality. I found that you know, I actually really enjoyed seeing other people do well and, and Suppose lending a hand in in their success. Did did that change your approach to to risk in any way? Because I'm thinking about you racing a motocross bike, and you know what the risks are, and you're in control. And for the things that you're not in control of, you're fully in acceptance of them. Yeah, I think I think when you're shouldering the risk for a team, you, you perhaps exercise a little bit more caution than when it's just you. Because whilst I might think these risks are acceptable for me. Uh, it's not really my place to decide whether or not it's acceptable for others. So I, I would say my appetite for risk is probably lesser when I'm considering you know, the overall uh, well-being of a team and, and the individuals within it. You must have been quite young when you did the branch manager job. 
Yeah, I think I was about 23. I was one, I was one of the youngest branch managers that they'd had. I remember that that was that was certainly the case at that point. I, I certainly remember that the interview that I had that job was full of questions around you know how how are you possibly going to lead some people that are almost double your age and certainly double your experience. And luckily, I, I was naive enough at the time to think that this wouldn't be a problem at all and, and that wouldn't even be an issue. And, and I truly believe that. Um, unfortunately, the, the first team that I led wasn't a problem at all. And um, I had a really good group of people there um, and I was able to learn quite a lot. I also had a very good uh, manager and mentor that I learned a lot from. Um, but yeah, I was really young as far as um, leadership roles in finance go. Absolutely. Because I think back to some of my first leadership roles and and what I didn't know that I realise now. But at the time, I either didn't know that I didn't know it or I refused to believe it, you know. And, and I think about some of the bad decisions I made. So you were lucky that first team was pretty good. Did that give you a false sense of what to expect with the next team that you were leading? Uh, not the exact next team, but I certainly uh, felt that way when I got my first job in Australia. I worked for NAB and you know, we made a really, really successful team and business. Gosh, I made so many mistakes in that, in that first probably 18 months that I think back about now and I just shudder at some of the things that I did and said. And you know, I thought they were right at the time. But as, as kind of um, as my knowledge and experiences built, it became pretty clear that there was a few things I'd probably do differently if I was able to have my time again. But I think by that point, I'd led a few teams. I certainly wasn't short of confidence, so it didn't rock me too badly. But I, I certainly learned a lot from it. And I was always accepting that you know, I don't know it all. And actually, I, I'm pretty accepting to the fact that sometimes doing things differently might get you a better result. And, and, and if that meant that I need to be a bit more open-minded and change my ways, if it was going to get me more success, I was, I was, I was going to do it. When it comes to changing your approach, or doing something different. How much of it's self-reflection and, and your ability to analyze what you're doing and make an adjustment versus advice you might get from other people or feedback? Yeah, I think it's almost all self-reflection. And when I think about some of the best coaches and leaders that I've worked with, uh, very rarely did they tell me something terrible that I'd done. Uh, they might ask me some questions that make me think about my behavior and then come to my own realization that, hey, do you know what? That probably wasn't optimal, what what we did there and certainly didn't get the right result. But I, I think as time has gone on, my ability to analyze whatever the outcome is and think firstly, what did I do to contribute to that? And certainly when it's gone, um, when it hasn't gone to plan, that is always where I would start. And it's, you know, what did I say, do, or um, not do leading up to that point that perhaps had a, um, a bearing on the outcome that we had? And I, I think over time, you know, if there's anything that I've, I've kind of um, learned more and more about, started to really prioritize, it's that self-reflection when, um, when things go wrong, but also when things go well as well, because... You know, you you might do some fantastic things and, and the result in, in in really good results and, and outcomes, but if you don't take the time to think about those and remember what it is that you did, it's very hard to replicate that moving forward. So I think 
whether or not the result is good or bad, that self-reflection is really key. And and is a real parallel to sporting excellence as well, whether it be rugby pitch, cycling, the analysis of what you did, the movement you did, the inputs and transfers, and the results you got from that. When it comes to to results, how driven are you for for results, especially in a sales business? And I ask this because I had Andy Fellon on episode two, and he's ex GM for St George Bank, and he'd come through the UK routes, and he was, and I could tell from the conversation. He was very exacting in terms of 100% where we start. I always want more than target, but where do you land on that? Yeah, look, I, I certainly uh, agree with that view. I think something I used to speak to my teams a lot about was if you finish 150% of your target, but you could potentially have hit 170% of your target, then you've underperformed, really. And I used to think a lot more about what is the capacity, like what is physically possible from any team versus you know what what are the um, what are the targets that have been set. Now sometimes that used to concern me a little bit because you have to wonder like you know you're, you're kind of driving a sales team really really hard and you know they're delivering, but if that's your view on it, how do you ever know really that you've hit capacity and at what point have you gone a step too far? You know at what point should you have kind of reconsidered the impact of your you know your actions and your your drive on the individuals within the team and, and not to say that these these teams weren't driven in the right way I, I absolutely believe that they were but you have to believe at what point is 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 too much too much you know and and um, that was something that I used to think about a lot but yeah irrespective of how far ahead of target you, you could have been in any kind of team or situation. I always used to think more about well, what is physically possible, like what is the absolute most we could possibly do at any point, and and that would be what I was shooting for. I'm always interested in exploring the dynamics of sales leadership, having dabbled myself and not had a clue on day one how it worked, and started to get my head around it in six months, and I mean it was at least twelve months before I was anywhere near hitting pace, and probably still behind where I wanted to be. But I'm interested in it because 50 to 80% of people in corporate life never experience what it's like to be in a sales role. So they, they would typically have the, have the attitude, well, if somebody doesn't want to buy, I can't sell. But there's a lot of simple formulas in sales that if we adopted in wider corporate life in terms of do the activity, have the right attitude, we might find that we get some results there. There might be parallels that we can draw and lessons we can learn. What, how, how do you ensure that your team is going to deliver the results that it can in a sales experience? Yeah, I, I, I think simply as far as the, um, the actions to get the results go. And, and I'll say this, like in any team that I've ever even seen, been a part of or, or known of, where the activity is done and you're doing the right things that you know these things are tried and tested and their basics just done well <clears throat> i'm yet to see a team not get the results off the back of it so if there is a team out there that do all of the right things and can't get the results I, I'm, I'm yet to learn a bit and it's certainly true of any of the teams that i've led like i, I was a real stickler for just doing 
basic stuff that actually any of us can do if we choose to. There's no talent involved here. It is basic things that you, you do. You do it the best that you can. You do it every day. And before you know it, the, um, the scoreboard at the end of the month kind of ticks over and, and you get the result that you expected to get. Sometimes these things take a little bit longer, but um, I think we overcomplicate things. I, I think sometimes where you're kind of staring at a, a really big result, but the reality is it's just, it's all those little actions. It's all those people doing the various things every single day that when you combine them all together, ultimately they, they, they deliver the bigger outcome. So that's my view on it. I, I don't think it's especially um, innovative or, or pioneering, but I'll be, um, I'd be interested to see any, any team that it doesn't work in. So you're back in Australia, you're honing your skills in financial services. You're not doing rugby league. What is, what does life look like outside? And, and I explore it because I'm really interested in how you take and where you get your energy from. Yeah. So I, I'm certainly a big one for hobbies. I think it's really important that people have a hobby. And for a few reasons, I think it's good to have the distraction of um, a hobby or a passion to make sure that you can fully switch off from work and recharge where necessary. But I think you know, if you don't have a hobby, that um, that recharging of your energy levels and your, and your thoughts is really difficult to achieve. So I've always been big on, on hobbies of sorts. And for no obvious reason for me i've always had fairly physical hobbies as well like i do like sport anything athletic um certainly love the outside and, and i think that's probably why I typically lived in somewhat uh, rural australia since i've been here i've never really been in the big cities um but when i first got to australia and i stopped playing football, uh, rugby league yeah i went back to uh, motocross i got myself a push bike so I was I was kind of outdoors. Bikes are a fairly common theme, I think, as far as any of my pastimes go. And that was a mountain um, bike, was it? Um, no, I actually got a road bike. I got a road bike. It was my first one. Never had one before. I remember riding down the street on it the first time, thinking, if I don't crash this, it's going to be an absolute miracle. Um, but it was actually a road bike, and my wife's brother taught me into it. Um, I had a big crash on the motocross bike, and he said we're going to get these bikes and they're good exercise for us we can do triathlon and he kind of sold it to me whilst i was laid in the hospital bed so yeah i ended up with a push bike a road bike and was it was it the lure of triathlon that put you on that that road bike to start with not really no no because being an englishman i wasn't very good at swimming so i, I wasn't especially keen to uh, to do triathlon but you know at the same time it, anything um Anything competition is appealing. Anything what is considered physically difficult, I, I, I seem to want to try my hand at. And I, I figured, you know, if I'm going to live in Australia, which is you know where we are here, is basically surrounded by beach, rainforest, mountains, and fairly beautiful scenery. Um, what better sport to kind of get involved in? And yeah, like I actually. I taught myself to swim, which I did on a, on a lunch hour, actually, when I was a branch manager at NAB. I used to pop down to the swimming pool and just start swimming as long as I could until I drowned and then um, try and do another lap the next day. And before I knew it, I could swim a kilometre. And I thought, right, well, probably ready. I could probably do a triathlon now without um, getting fished out of the swim. At what point was 
someone stupid enough to convince you that someone your size could win a bicycle race in England. <laughs> yeah, it's funny how that all came about. So we we moved to Brisbane for work actually, um, just before I started working with you, in fact. And at that point, I'd had reasonable success at triathlon. I'd, I'd represented uh, Great Britain in the age group championships in Chicago. And I thought I was a triathlete and I thought that's what I was going to do. And um, I certainly wasn't naturally talented at it, but you know, I was quite happy to work hard and I seemed to get okay results. So I was a triathlete. I was introduced to a local cycling group in the area and they used to take me out and show me the roads that, that I would later train on. And one of the people, my friend Rodo, he'd said to me, well, we're actually racing at a local Criterium race this weekend. You should come and have a race. And initially I thought, no, I don't think so. I don't think that's going to be for me. Um, and he goes, yeah, come and enter B grade. There'll be no pressure. So, yeah, I'll probably go C or D grade, to be honest, if I'm going to come and race. But um, I'm really not sure about it. And I was, I was quite anxious and, and worried that I hadn't ridden in the peloton before and I could just see me bringing the whole thing down and you know, making a mistake and being that guy. Anyway. Um, not hard to convince to do stuff and, and he eventually kind of taught me into it and I went and raced at this local race and things were going well I knew I was getting towards the end of the race and when they rang the bell to say this is the last lap I, I didn't really know what to do I had no, no idea whatsoever so I just thought well I'll just ride as fast as I can and maybe just maybe um, I'll finish near the front and that would be a good result and as I got about halfway around, I looked back and I thought, they haven't caught me yet. Like I might end up maybe third or fourth, and this, this would be really good in my first race. And then as I was starting to near the end of the, of the lap, I looked again and I thought, I'm actually going to win this race. And probably, luckily in fairness, and, and I think the fact they'd never seen me before, so they didn't really know, didn't really know to chase me. And to be honest, I didn't know if they should have chased me either. I, I, I had no, no idea what I was doing. But there was actually a local team down there that were watching that race. And I think they were perhaps recruiting at that point for their racing team the next year. So after the race, they spoke to me and said, could you just come and speak to us next week? And we'll tell you what the team's about, what types of benefits you get. And I was like, well, why not? Why wouldn't I? So I went and spoke to them and they, they kind of sold me on it. They told me about all this, all this kit that I'd get for free. It seemed fun and good. Um, they spoke to me about the different races that they plan to do and and really you know I'd, I'd no reason not to do it so i was like all right i'm in and uh, i started racing for the race organic cycling team there in brisbane you don't get to win a crit race of any grade when it's your first race unless you've got an outstanding level of power and fitness so clearly the, the rides that you've been doing with Rodo up to this point had not been coffee cruises. And, you know, is that an no. indication of how you attack things all the time? How many speeds have you got? Is it, is it nothing and everything? Or is it something in between? The cycling thing is an interesting one because at that point, all I'd really done is time trials because I was a triathlete, right? I'd done half Ironman, I'd done one Ironman. But, but my training was about, you know, a, a long, sustained power output over whatever the, you know, the, the duration of the course would be. 
So if you think about what I've been doing and what I've been practicing, though I didn't know at the time, what I then did in that crit raise was actually exactly what I'd been practicing and exactly what I'd been doing. It just happened to come off. But later down the track, uh, I actually became a sprinter and, and I was a sprinter for the teams that I raced for. And, and that was probably more linked to the uh, training that I'd done as a rugby league player more than it was a triathlete. And I lost a lot of that longer sustainable power um, in favour of somehow um, reactivating some fast twitch muscle fibres and becoming a, a sprinter. And, and I learned how to become a sprinter as well, like as far as where do I need to put myself on the last lap? What are the things I shouldn't be getting involved in during the race if I'm going to have a chance of winning it? And I had a coach up there, a guy called Jack Anderson, who'd, who'd won a lot of races himself, and um, he taught me how to do it. He, he, he trained me to do it, and yeah, later I became a later I became a sprinter. But I, I just think at the time, maybe it was a course that was ideal for me. It was well attuned to the training that I'd been doing, and the, and you know, the shape of power that I had at that time. So yeah, it, I ended up winning the race, but I, I think good timing above anything else so you're succeeding well at cycling and you're probably like most most people a confidence player so you're on cloud nine you're feeling good what's happening from a corporate perspective alongside this yeah around that time um i was a regional manager for uh, credit union australia in brisbane previously been a regional manager for them down in new south wales and I moved up there to be a regional manager for them in their, in what they called it, the flagship region, because CUA is a, a Brisbane business and um, like their biggest businesses were, were in that Brisbane region. So uh, my boss at the time, Andy, had asked me to go up there and run that, that particular region for him. So when I got there, um, the region was not doing well. I think it was eight from eight at the time. And there were some real cultural problems in and amongst some of the teams and some of the branches. So I was really in the process of rebuilding that team, but I'd had to do a similar thing in New South Wales in the first region that I went to and probably just learned how to navigate that a little bit easier and quicker by the time I got to Brisbane. And the Brisbane region turned around really quickly. We're talking about like between three and six months, we kind of went from the bottom to the top and we're doing really, really well. We also had a guy working with us who was like a um, sales capability coach and um, very, very good with mindset coaching and, and influence coaching. And he, he took a shine to me. He, he saw something in me and, and, he, and he really invested some time in, in, um, in my development. And I think that just really helped accelerate the changes that I was able to make in that particular Brisbane team. Um, so, yeah, around the same time, my, my corporate career was really, like, really kind of taking off. And um, we were getting really, really good results. What kind of cultural issues can derail a, a big team, which is measured on you know, very clear numerical results? Yeah, that was probably a, um, a result of the previous structure, to be honest. So um, just before I went up there, we basically had homelanders reporting in via one channel and branches reporting in via a different channel, but they sat together out in the branches and, and were were encouraged to work together. Um, but some of their objectives were at odds and there wasn't really, outside of it being the right thing to do, 
there wasn't really any clear benefit of working together. And, and so um, subsequently, there was, there was some conflicts between the branch managers and the homelanders and everyone else in the branch. It's probably at its worst um, in that Brisbane region, um, I, I would think, due to prior leadership. So those, there was some relationships there that needed to be mended. There was relationships there that needed to be severed and, and kind of new relationships brought in. Um, but as I say, I, I think some of the help that I got from, um, well, from various people, but certainly uh, Mike Dunn, who was working with us at the time, um, I was able to turn that around pretty quickly, quicker than I perhaps thought I would be able to initially. Yeah, that's interesting. That um, it, it, When your operating model or your structure or the way you've got teams put together, quite often it's as simple as that in that they just don't work together. You know, n- not consciously trying to do the wrong thing, but they just pull them in different directions. That's right. I think, the, as I say, the objectives were odds, and, and that was um, that was a problem. I don't think I think there's a single person in that team that wasn't a good person, um, but you know they 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 weren't encouraged based on their um, suppose their results and metrics to work together. And frankly, <clears throat> it's important that the branches and the homelanders work really tightly together because. Otherwise, neither of them could be successful. It would be physically impossible, in fact. So it was a shame. But, but yeah, that, that, that was the cause, I believe. How can, can suboptimal structures like that come to fruition? Because the people that put them together are experienced. They've been in the game a long time. They've delivered success and results. So they think they're building a structure that's going to work. And hindsight's a wonderful thing. And it's only at that point where you realize it's not going to. But if we try and avoid the problems of the past to make sure that the future works, why, why do you think we, we, we can get it wrong? And there's numerous cases of where this can happen. Mm. I think in this particular instance, there's, there's probably a few different reasons. But I think <clears throat> if you think about where CUA was at that time, it was essentially a collection of people who had, who had held quite senior roles at some of the big banks. Some of the big banks are bigger and are considered to be more successful. And surely if you bring some of the things that they did, put it in a small little thing like CUA, then it'll, you know, it'll go kind of kicking and screaming in, into, the, um, into the future and, and get success like Westpac would or ANZ or, or whoever it might be. The reality is, I think, if those structures that have been reconsidered Westpac, Westpac would have probably got better results as well. But I think there was this bullishness that you know, we're, we're from a big bank and now we're in this little um, credit union. If we bring some of these big bank practices and policies and processes and structures, we'll get the big bank results. And um, clearly that's not right. And I think one of the other things is um, in kind of making these little divisions within divisions to a degree, there's a bit of cottage industry going on there as well. And I'm kind of creating something for myself that I can own and I can be safe in and do well in. Therefore, you know, I'd like to see it prevail. Um, that, that wasn't, that wasn't my view. You know, I, I, I was kind of what success for the place. And you know, if that meant uh, busting up a um, structure, then, then, then so be it. If it was for the greater good of, of the, um, of the business. And I'm not privy to what it looks like now, but I'm sure it's a more simpler business. And it will always hold a place close to my heart. And I think mutuality in, in and of itself is something that I really supported. 
Yeah. So as I understand it, and it's been a little while since I've worked there, but um, certainly when I left it, it was it, it was far more unified. You know, there was really only one reporting line, and, and everybody was kind of facing towards the same goals and working together to try and achieve them, which you know inevitably I think brings a little bit more success. And yeah, I, I actually don't know of any other business that operates in, in kind of the old format anymore. I think that's that, that's certainly for the best. How do you manage your time? Because at, at that point your regional manager and then you later move on to run the entire branch network. You're competitively cycling as part of a team, so you have commitments. And you've also got a young family at the same time. There's not a lot left. No, it's difficult. Um and I you know I would probably argue at times I maybe didn't manage my time all that well. You know, I think at one point there I was doing my MBA, I was training for Melbourne Ironman. And um, I had a six-month-old daughter, so I'm not really sure. Uh, I'm well equipped to tell you <laughs> what good time management looks like, because that was a that was a pretty terrible, um, pretty terrible period as far as time management goes. But but I think to to, um, to come back to your question, certainly as it relates to Brisbane, the sports that I have most recently done probably do lend themselves to somebody who has a somewhat busy corporate career in that um, you start to live your life a little bit like a toddler. You um, you wake up obnoxiously early and you go to bed when the cartoons finish. So I think when I think about like triathlon and cycling, that's that's a 5am kickoff. So you're home and kind of guilt-free and ready to start your day before 7. So it, it kind of doesn't really family too much because they've probably been asleep up until that point it doesn't affect work because you're probably getting into the office at 7 30 8 o'clock which is considered fairly normal and then as of the night time you know, your, your, your sport and your hobby doesn't affect any of that so i mean that that isn't why i chose those hobbies but uh, coincidentally and, and and helpfully they, they were both really early morning um hobbies and I'm not sure it affected my time management too badly. And now, now the push bikes being hung up from a competitive perspective, and you're a CrossFitter. Yeah. How did that also happen? Also, a five AM kickoff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, cycling in Brisbane was was really awesome. I, I ended up I, I changed from that original team. I, I went and raced for a team who competed in the. Queensland Road Team Series, and a lot of the people who I, who I trained with and raced against on the weekend, they, they were racing in this other team, and, and I, I raced for them, and that was a really, really fun season. But at the end of that season, we made the decision to move back to New South Wales. My wife was homesick, and um, you know, I think I'd kept promising her that we would go back to New South Wales, and eventually I had to make good on that promise because each time I'd said it previously, I would then get a promotion at work and she'd go, oh, we'll just stay for one more year. I was like, yeah, thank you. And then I'd say, at the end of this year, that I will definitely go. And I might get a promotion again. She was like, oh, you can stay, you know, we'll do one more year. But eventually, you know, enough was enough. And even I knew I was being selfish at that point. So, yes, yeah, so we moved back. And then whilst I was in the process of moving back, I was looking for a team to race for. And there was a, 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 a fairly newly 
established team called Duez, who um, who are a Newcastle-based team. And in, in the state races that I'd attended, when, where I was basically riding on my own, um, they'd been really dominant. And, and you know, they had some really good riders, really good support. Um, and and I, I'd been speaking with their team manager on and off. Anyway, eventually we, we agreed that um, the following season from me moving back to New South Wales, would start racing with those guys. And it was awesome. Like we had, we had a really, really good year. I won a lot of um, different competitions that I'd, I'd hoped to, like won a, a New South Wales State Criterium Championship. Somehow ended up second in a road race, although we weren't actually riding for me. It was just kind of the way that the, that the race fell apart in, in the last lap. And somehow I was there at the end. Um, we won the Cervelo um, Masters Series. Also, I think I got New South Wales Roadman of the Year, like it, everything I could possibly about to get in that year, and, and to be honest, um, absolutely due to the support of that team and, and and some of the guys that were that were helping me get those wins, um, it was kind of a perfect year, really. So, um, from a competition perspective, it was unreal, but from a training perspective, I was training on my own all of a sudden. So I was out at five a.m. every morning. It was dark. It was cold. There was cars. And eventually, I just got to the point where I just thought, I actually don't want to do this every day. And I also didn't really want to race if I didn't win. So it was either you do the training or you don't race. So I ended up thinking, well, you know, maybe I could do something different. And I went to watch the CrossFit Open at the gym. And my wife was competing in that at the time. And she told me about CrossFit, but I, I, yeah, I, I just thought it was a lot of people walking around with no shirts on and didn't really understand it. And I was pretty confident it wasn't for me. Um, but anyway, I, I went to watch CrossFit Open and I saw the community and everybody supporting each other and, and, and probably more what CrossFit is, which is, which is that community feel. And it's the you know, achievement of other people being willed on by everybody around them. And I think it reminded me a little bit of my rugby league days, to be honest. So I decided that the next thing I was going to do was going to be CrossFit. And, and coincidentally, around that time, we, um, we purchased a local CrossFit gym. Um, I didn't do a lot to help, to be honest. It's, it's been my wife's business the whole time, and, and I still probably don't do a lot to help. Um, but I, I did start doing the sport. And um, like anything, really, anything that I've ever done, I, I wasn't blessed with, with any real talent. Um, not at all, in fact. But I am I'm pretty um, belligerent as far as um, learning new skills, putting in the training, getting fitter, getting stronger, and, and generally you know, with, with CrossFit, um, the things that were really kind of costing me time early and, and I was really struggling with, I just practiced and practiced and practiced until there were the, the things that I was the best at, like for, for myself, like the things that I did the best, and 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 I suppose yeah. Um, I got myself to a reasonable level in that sport relatively quickly. And, and that leads us to today. And I think I've been doing CrossFit three and a half years now. I want to come back to the gym in a minute, but first just to explore your CrossFit. So your physique's clearly changed since you started CrossFit. I'm not saying I've been stalking your Instagram or no, anything like that, but it definitely has. What's your weight difference from a cyclist to a CrossFit man? Yeah, I think at my absolute lightest as a cyclist, I I was very, very, very um, focused on my weight as a cyclist because I was big, right? I was heavy as far as cyclist goes. And 
you know, sprinters are big and, and, you know, they probably do carry a bit more muscle than most other cyclists, but I was really big and I was always worried that you know, I might not be able to do my job because I might not make it at one of the hills or get dropped and go out the back of the peloton and then I'm not around to do the thing that the team needs me to do. So I was always very conscious of my weight and making sure that I would survive those climbs and I would just about get over and I would be there at the end to do, to do the thing that's important. So I, I think I actually got as light as 82 kilos when I was, um, when I was cycling. And if you contrast that to when I was playing, I was 104 when I was playing. Like when I first came out of, um, when I first went into retirement, sorry, I was 104 kilos. Now I sit at about 94 kilos, which I think is probably natural for me. I think like where my physique is now, this isn't me hungry. This isn't me eating a load of food to try and get bigger or anything like that. This is just kind of naturally where I've reverted to with the level of training and, and things that I do. You, you at 82 must have been less than 10% weaker. I, I don't know. I mean, I probably measure my body fat more now um, because I've got the scanner available to me. But when I was cycling, I mean, sometimes I look at the photos from, from those times and I just look, I look almost ill. Like it was, I don't think it's a good look for me. And, and I don't think it was a natural state for me to be in either. It probably isn't for any good cyclist, to be fair. And I, I'm not necessarily saying I was a good cyclist, but your tour guys that they are very very thin people i don't think they eat a lot of food um but yeah i, I can't imagine my body fat was very high but i was probably malnourished to be to be really honest so moving from a, a cyclist at 82 to a, a lean muscly 94 what's your daily calorie intake or what was it when you were moving from a to b yeah, I, I think I've probably leveled out anywhere anywhere between like twenty eight hundred calories and three thousand. I think that's probably maintenance for me. So when I first started doing um, CrossFit and focusing on, on on a lot more actually my nutrition than, than I ever had, I um I found that I could fairly quickly make changes in myself with just some fairly small changes um, to diet. And whilst I was experimenting kind of built like a baseline of what I should be eating every day if I want to get X result or what I should be eating a day if I should get Y or Z result. And now I know roughly what I should be eating every day without counting calories, without counting macros and what I can have and just stay the same. Conversely, like there are times where I want to focus on getting a little bit stronger and, and you know, really committing to a strength cycle. I know we'll up it a little bit, but I, um, I learned quite a lot first started doing CrossFit as far as what my um, what my intake should look like and now I don't really stress about it. It just kind of it's just like a natural product of of what I do each day. What are your go to foods for a for a good healthy good healthy life, you know, without living like a monk? Yeah. Um so something we've been doing for years and years is um, at breakfast time just eating rolled oats, some protein powder and some water poured on the microwave. And honestly, like it's one of the most, deli most delicious breakfasts you could imagine. So I, I reckon, you know, it, it, even if I could eat whatever the hell I wanted, you'd probably still pick to eat that um, as a breakfast. I've been really lucky that a local um, meal prep company called LiveFit uh, took an interest in me um, probably just over a year ago. And, and certainly not because 
because of my um, athletic prowess. I think it's probably more because of my reach into the um, into the gym and, and the local CrossFit community. So um, they sponsored me and, and I eat their meals pretty much every lunchtime. And um, again, like I was saying, if I, if I want to kind of um, up my calories, I just eat different meals of theirs or put more protein in them and you can kind of, you can kind of build your meals however you want them. So that's every lunch. And then dinner time, it's fairly basic stuff. It's lean, lean meat or fish and, and, and vegetables and protein shakes before bed. But I've, with regard to um, nutrition and calorie intake, I'm just not one of the people that obsesses about that. I just, um, yeah, I, I think some people give it too much thought. And, you know, maybe if I was competing at the absolute highest level and, you know, I was a, I was a games athlete, maybe I'd take it a bit more seriously. But for me, like it's just about eating enough food that you've got the energy to do the training that you want to do and you don't feel moody or flat. There's a lot of really good and really available health data and health advice around these days, uh, ranging from fasting, which by the sounds of it, you don't mess about, you know, ranging to cold exposure, ranging to heat exposure. Are there any particular things that you've latched onto and work really well for you? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the, the only one really that I pay attention to is the, you know, the the theory around the calorie deficit. So, you know, if you consume less calories than what you burn, you will lose weight, like that's science. And conversely, if you consume more calories than you burn, you'll put weight on. And I remember uh, listening to some of James Smith's um, podcasts and videos early on, and he, he, he kind of fairly simplistically explains how that works and um you know, that's the theory that i've kind of tested on myself and you know i've got no doubt that it's true i've seen my wife michelle work with some of her clients and the, the they've made changes to their calorie deficits and just not even necessarily change the amount of food they eat but just making sure they do more steps and therefore burn more calories and the physical impact of that is, is quite profound actually when you when you do it over a longer sustained period of time you probably can't do it for a week and expect to see huge changes and unfortunately people do that is what they expect and when they don't get change after a week they quit but i think if you're going to commit to it as a um as a lifestyle change you know you're going to be more active you're going to do more steps and you're going to make a few smarter choices as far as calorie dense foods if you work out how to create a sustainable calorie deficit for yourself you, you, you you will lose weight without doubt and then, you know, this side of the coin is some people are, you know, in their opinion, too skinny and they want to put weight on and be a little bit more muscly. Um, you know, the, the opposite is true. Like they need to consume more calories if they want to get bigger. So, yeah, I, I think that's probably a, um, a theory that I, I subscribe to. And, and whenever I'm asked for advice on anything like that, that's, that's always the first thing that I talk about. And being fit and being healthy undoubtedly helps you from an energy perspective around whatever your day job is, whatever your aspirations are. Do you have any other health or mindset protocols that keep you fresh for what you have to do inside and outside of work? Uh, look, not that I practice, to be honest. Like I, I, I know there's a lot of science that supports things like um, saunas and ice baths, and I, I don't necessarily challenge them as not being true. I'm sure that they are. I'm just a really bad example of living them because I don't, I, I knowingly don't prioritize my recovery well enough. I've got no doubt I'd be a much better athlete if I, if I did. When I'm faced with a decision, I've got 30 minutes to do some more training, maybe get fitter, perhaps a bit stronger. 
or do I spend that doing some of the um, recovery activities, which which I know I should do, because uh, they're a bit boring. I don't do that. I, I do more training, and you know, I, I, I kind of know that's wrong. But I would say if there's anything that if there was something that I could change within myself, um, it would be good to be a little bit better with the recovery protocols. It must be one of one of life's just outliers in terms of what you can do without doing the recovery. Yeah, or maybe not. I mean, as I get older, I get more and more sore and, and, and stuff tends to go wrong with my body. And I end up taking kind of forced recovery because I haven't prioritized it before before now. And yeah, The problem is I know myself quite well. I know what I will commit to and, and what I'll do. And I also know what I won't commit to and what I won't do. And um, yeah, I, I think it'll always be a challenge for me, uh, recovering well enough. Until you get to fifty, you really can only imagine. Um, I want to talk about Michelle opening the gym because she did that at a time where something significant was happening globally. Mm. That must have been a scary moment. Yeah, it was. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not sure exactly how long we'd had ownership of the gym for. I think it was about six weeks we owned it before we were forced into lockdown the first COVID breakout. So, um, you know, we we just handed over a fair bit of money and um, got a member base there that we were trying to grow because that's, that's where the revenue comes from. And really without any warning or any ability to plan, um, we, were, we were forced into lockdown. So yeah, I think initially we were in a state of panic uh, and then we, we fairly quickly thought, well, what is within our control that we can do that will that will perhaps mean we um, we stay afloat because we don't know how long this is going to be for. And I'm an optimist and I'm naive, so I thought maybe it would just be a couple of weeks and then everything would go back to normal. And yeah, I knew what was going on in, in China at the time and you know, I probably shouldn't have thought we'd be through it in two weeks. But anyway, that's, that, that was, that's what I thought would happen. Um, so we started quickly then thinking about, well, you know, how can we create some benefits for our membership base that keep them training, keep them exercising, keep them healthy through what's going to be a really difficult time, and at the same start, at the same time, keep the um, keep the gym going as well. But yeah, it was it was pretty terrifying that hit that day. You're really digging into your reserves of resilience, which which both of you clearly have in spades in a situation like that. Yeah, I, I think. To say, I think initially it's it's kind of panic, but then it then it's more a case of um, you know how can you adapt quickly, and, and then you know you know perhaps even prosper. Like if you adapt quicker than everybody else, you know maybe you can come out a bit better than everybody else as well. So yeah, I mean, full credit really to Michelle, and she thought about a lot of different things, but she was handing out defitting all of the gym and taking all the equipment out and giving that to everybody so they could train at home, giving the rowing machines away, giving the dumbbells, the barbells, the plates. And once they've done that, and that's great, you know, people have got a reason to train now. They've got some stuff that they can use. How do they know what types of things they could be doing at home? Because they haven't got a gym anymore. They've just got a barbell or just got whatever. So then programming bespoke workouts for them so that they could keep training. And then, you know, one of the things that I really struggled with during lockdown was I just hated training in the house and training on my own. 
not been able to make any noise first thing in the morning because I'm up early and I want to train early. So then we created a few different competitions and you know, put all the membership base into certain teams and just try to create a bit of fun and interest for everybody to keep them going whilst whilst times were hard. And yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong, like we we did lose members. Some people never came back and um, you know, they found new things to do and, and other types of exercise to engage in. And, you know, um, that's going to happen, but it certainly kept the business alive. And uh, when the when the doors eventually opened back up, you know, we we kind of got moving again in the right direction. <laughs> we had another lockdown. Yeah, it was never ending. For those that stayed, it looks like you've got a really tight community now. I've seen some of the footage and the posts from when when you all go to the competitions, and it looks like it's a family rather than a customer base. Yeah, it is. So I think our ethos behind how Ocean kind of works and always has been from day one, that it's actually a community first and a gym second. And, you know, Michelle's kind of driven that from day one and that, you know, that's always been the thing that she's prioritised above any, making sure that it you know, truly is a community, is a, it is a family feel, the atmosphere and the environment is conducive to people being happy, getting the best hour of the day when they're training. Um, and, and, and like you say, when, when we go to the CrossFit competitions, like we, you know, we tend to take an army and we have a lot of people come and support us. And, you know, we have a, a really good, constructive, encouraging um, community there. And I, I think, you know, we tried to keep that alive the best that we could during COVID. And I think that was the right focus. So, um, what's what's it like at home with two alphas in the house? <laughs> is that me and the dog Reggie, or is that Michelle and the dog Reggie? I'll let you decide who it is. Yeah, um, no, it can, it can be funny actually. Um, if we ever work out where Michelle gets me, and to be clear, that's very rare. It hardly ever happens. But when she does, she's um, she, she's quick to let me know that she she's beaten my score and. I'll need to I need to lift my game, but to be honest, I, I think um, there's a good mutual respect there. I, I think that you know, certainly Michelle, as a as an athlete, you know, I've got a lot of respect for her. But you know, certainly as a, as as a mom um, and a business owner, like you know, I, I see how hard she works. I see the amount of time that she puts in, and I've certainly got an admiration and a um, and a respect for her, and and. You know, Michelle's, as I say, she's kind of lived through a lot of different um, chapters of my corporate career and, and been very supportive and, you know, made a lot of sacrifices to make sure that I was able to do the things that I've been able to do. And not just from a corporate perspective either, from a, um, from a sporting and, a, and a, a hobby perspective too. You know, that's, that's got to have an impact as well when you're away on the weekend doing, doing these things and vanishing at 5am every morning to go and do them. So, um yeah, I, I don't. I don't feel like there's a like there's a power struggle or anything. But um, maybe on the days when she beats me, I guess you're the kind of family that nobody wants to go up against ever. Yeah, I, I don't know. We actually don't compete together very often anymore. Um, various reasons. It's I think it's just a, a good way to have an argument. Actually, when a workout isn't going well and somebody's going to have to be to blame, and um, I don't like it to be me. She doesn't like it to be her. So don't do much of that but when we have competed we've actually yeah we've done okay we're um 
we do all right. We do all right. Fantastic. So corporate life has took a bit of a swerve. You've gone away from the big teams and you've gone back to your roots in terms of home lending and brokerage. And of course now as franchisee, you're you know, you're you're at the center of it. Mm. What what caused that shift? Um it's hard to know how far back to go, to be honest, but I had spoken about being a broker for a long time. I think probably um it's up to nearly 20 years now working in finance and certainly for 15 of those I've been talking about being a broker. I had a quick go at it um, at MoneyQuest and um, I was at CDA at the time and the opportunity came up to work at a local brokerage that was quite successful and um, the chap there, Paul Wright, was actually um, a very, very successful broker himself. I got an opportunity to go there and work alongside him as, as one of the um, one of the main brokers at MoneyQuest there. Um, and at that point, I, I thought that that was kind of the, the long-term move for me, but I actually sold that brokerage and a role came up at Aussie back in corporate and I, I kind of switched back into corporate before I'd ever really kind of go in. But I did enjoy my time as a broker and it, it, the success was starting to come quite quickly. So I figured I could do it, and I certainly enjoyed it. Yeah, I'd gone back into the corporate role at Aussie. I spent about two and a half years doing that. And then whilst I was doing that, actually, I met Chris, my business partner at um, Aussie Shell Harbour, and and he tried to sell me the whole thing um, when he first met me. But um, at that point, I think I said to him, look, that's so much money. I don't have enough money to do that. Um, Maybe down the track I could do half, and we just kind of kept the um, kept the conversation running on and off for, over that time. And um, I got to the point last year, and I thought, "Geez, I've spoken about this a lot, and um, there's an opportunity here for me to do this with the company that I want to do it with, in the suburb that I live in, where I've got deep connections due to the gym and, and various other things." If if I if I'm not the person to do it, then who is? And if I don't do it now, then when am I going to do it? And I found myself kind of asking those questions over and over and over, and I couldn't answer them. So I um, decided that I was going to go for it, and I was going to um, I was going to buy half, and and um, I was going to see out my my working career as a um, as a franchisee broker. And 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 to be honest. There hasn't been a single day's past where I've had any question whether or not I did the right thing or whether or not this is what I wanted to do. I've, I've really loved it and um, we're doing really well now, which is which is reassuring. reassuring. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's probably one of the decisions I've made in my career where I'm the most happy with. What's going on with the Aussie housing market? I don't know what it's like in Shell Harbour, but Queensland's frightening. Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, it's, it always seems to be that little bit extreme around here. And, and what I mean by that is that the property prices shot up like over a, you know, a period of time now, like quite a few times, there's a few different huge shoots. And we've really found ourselves in a position now around here where it's very, very difficult to buy a house around here, certainly as a first-time buyer. So many instances it's not really possible and you know, that obviously adds a um, adds a dimension as a as a broker that you need to be quite mindful of and 
you know, educate the best that you can on. In addition to that, we've obviously got rising interest rates, which makes it really difficult to uh, borrow the amount of money that you, you could say 12 months ago when interest rates weren't quite as high because obviously banks assess borrowing capacity differently now because obviously their assessment rates higher. So like, if you kind of combine those two, it makes it a really, really interesting market. And you would say like, I've time to be a broker. The, the flip side of that is people with existing loans are obviously seeing their rates go through the roof, they're getting jacked and jacked and jacked. So we've got a, you know, we've got a lot of customers there that, that need help and, and need to be refinanced onto a better rate and save some money. So I think whilst purchases are really difficult just now, uh, the refinance market's good for us. And one of the reflections I had um, earlier in the week, I was chatting to a customer just about, just about the environment really. And, and I said, as brokers, we you know, anything extreme is pretty good for us. So when interest rates were below 2%, everybody wanted one of those. So you know, you'd see a lot of people want to refinance onto one of them. People could borrow plenty of money to buy uh, properties. So the, you know, the house prices around here were probably less of a hurdle for them. Um, so that extreme was good for us. And then now where we're at, where rates are just rocketing up, you know, people need help and they need a bit of guidance and you know, some good some good home loan advice so so that's good for us as well i think where we probably don't want to be is, is somewhere in the middle where nothing extreme is going on it's certainly exciting times and it, it, I, I can imagine there's a lot of satisfaction in helping people get into the houses they want or you know helping them optimize the finances in the houses that they already live yeah there is and we see these really unusual um Fringe cases as well, I'd, I'd probably describe them as where like, this is a scenario you've never before seen in your life. And this customer's in a state of panic and they don't know how they're going to solve it. Um, but when you're able to come up with a solution that's taken a fair bit of thinking about and nobody else has come up with it and it works and it, you know, it meets the objective that they've, they've come to you to solve, I think that's probably the most fulfilling part of being a mortgage broker. And we've had a couple this week where I don't suppose we would have made a whole heap of money out of it, to be honest, but certainly walked away from it going, I'm really, really glad I was able to help that person. And I can just imagine what a weight off their mind that is now, you know, that's now been. Brilliant. So your episode five on this podcast, um, all the episodes to this point in time, I haven't asked this question, but the podcast is called Life Lessons. And through this conversation, we start to get an insight into you, what you've achieved, how you do it. But explicitly asking the question, you know, what would be the one big lesson that that you would want to you would want to share with other people? Yeah, I think I think some of the things that perhaps I view a bit differently to a lot of other people are the the notion of talent and and kind of you know the stuff that you're born with innately versus the stuff that you can kind of carve out for yourself. And when I think back to my career. Um, in sport and in corporate, I wouldn't probably describe either as being all that remarkable, but I, I'm, I'm proud of what I've done. And really for me, you know, I never felt like I was blessed with a whole heap of talent, but I still thought I could achieve something worth achieving. And so when I think about things that I did in rugby league, like I got to the level that I was capable of getting to, and I'm proud of that. And that's because I worked really hard and I was stubborn and I wouldn't give in. You know, I put the time in and, and, and really 
I, I really kind of hedged my bets by working harder, or at least harder than I could see that anybody else was working. And, and, and I kind of got somewhere there. I think if you've got realistic aspirations of what it is that you want to achieve, uh, you can get there. I think you know, if I'd have had the objective of being, oh gosh, I don't know, um, you know I wanted to kind of pass Mark Cavendish's uh, race win record as a sprinter. Like, no matter how hard I worked, I was never going to do that. You know, like I just wasn't, I wasn't blessed with the talent that he was. But, but I think because my aspirations were quite realistic, put them within a level where hard work would get me there. And I would would be able to um, would be able to achieve them. So I think, you know, for me, um, hard work will trump talent, and and that's true in, in in your corporate career as well. If you're coachable and you're open to doing things differently to get a better result, and you're happy to put in the work to improve your craft, um, I, I think you, you absolutely can get remarkable results in a corporate uh, field as well. Brilliant. Thank you. Great way to end the podcast. Thanks very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Things are going really well. I hope you continue to do so. Thanks, Alistair. Thanks a lot for having me on. And um, yeah, I hope that's a value to somebody. Really do.